0: Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susanne Echidon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't people who bring their full selves to work, and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well, and might even generate better numbers.
1: Today I am delighted to be joined on Life Beyond the Numbers by Becca Brighty. Becca, you're so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thanks Susan, nice to be here. Becca and I met at a Purchase to Pay Network event in London in early June. And we of course had lots in common and Becca actually reached out to me saying let's meet and I'm so delighted she did. And Since I've connected with Becca, I've been following her on LinkedIn. She's very active. One of the things that you've written about, Becca, is that you've embraced a Thomas Edison
2: approach to life. So would you tell everybody what that means? So there's the saying by Thomas Edison is something like, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've found 10,000 ways it won't work. And I just like that approach to, well, mainly to business, that, I think, especially as a self-employed person, you need to just be okay with the idea that you're going to invest in some stuff and it's not going to work. And you're going to try to do some things and that's not going to work. And if you can get really comfortable with that, you're going to be more successful so I do workshops I run a monthly networking event in the northeast of England called the people and culture forum and every month that's about a science behind having an engaged and productive workforce and yesterday was about the relationship between failure and success and innovation and that was all about how if you can change your mindset to being very comfortable with failure people think of failure as a like a negative thing. I've also had a startup and in the startup world, people just see failure as like, oh, when things don't go right or things don't go how you imagined. It's just like, well, we know that that's now not an option. So we're closer to what is the right thing. And so for me, there's been lots of things that haven't been the right thing. But if you can not get hung up on that and not let it affect you too much, then you can get closer to what is the right thing. So that was what the Thomas Edison approach to life is about, is just like you haven't failed you just not got the right solution yet
1: I always think of babies learning to walk because obviously they learn to walk by standing up and flopping back down on the ground and they do it until they stand and walk and they haven't failed at walking they just have found hundreds of different ways it didn't work however as adults it's just it's got such a bad rap, hasn't it? And what you're saying about not getting hung up on failure, not being
2: comfortable with it, how? So how do you do it? What I talk about and what this is pretty much what I talk about from every angle, whether it's confidence, whether it's innovation, whether it's success, whether it's imposter syndrome, it's about your mindset. So there's certain industries that are just completely comfortable with failing; That's just part of their job. So scientists, for example, like a chemist, a lot of a chemist's job is going into the lab mixing a, a potion and <laughs> uh, adding some things together going that doesn't work this part of it looks promising so now I'm going to put one mil less of this particular product into the potion and doing that over and over and over again And they don't think oh man today I made like 300 potions that didn't work or what a waste of life they're just like all right this out we found this out and so there's, there's certain ways that people are trained like in those industries they're just trained to think that that's just the normal way of doing things and so what I talk to people about is this idea that if you can reframe failure as being something that you can learn from then that can help you to see failure as a more positive thing so my startup we love work is a HR tech startup and it started off as a values-based recruitment tool and it's now a culture assessment and that's because at first, we wanted it to be where candidates would complete a values assessment when they were looking for a job, companies would complete a culture assessment. And then when you were applying for a job, all the results of the job hunt would come up in terms of cultural fit for you and the companies. Companies weren't interested in the values piece. This was like six years ago. So companies weren't particularly interested in that, but they were really interested in the culture. So we were like, all right, okay, we'll drop the values bit and we'll just do the culture bit. And as a result of that, we've now got a partnership with Facebook Workplace and they tell their customers about it. And so we could, instead of thinking like, oh, like this values thing isn't working, we were able to see, okay, so the values bit doesn't work, but what can we learn from what hasn't worked, but also what has worked? And that then led us in more of a positive direction. So I think being able to learn from failure and just see failure as just an everyday part of life is part of it. But then also seeing what you can learn from it, the good things that come out of things not going the way you planned. So my boyfriend at university I was just like obsessed with him completely in love with him and um, are like worship the ground he walked on <laughs> and the relationship was really good for a long time but then after a while it wasn't good and we broke up and like that, that could be seen as like a failed relationship and then we did happily end up getting back together after two years the fact that we had those two years apart means that now it's almost our five-year anniversary we're really happy We wouldn't have learned about ourselves in that time. I, like, lived in Australia. I lived in Manchester. I lived with my sister. I went on loads of fun holidays that I wouldn't have done and I wouldn't have been able to do because of the way our lives are if we were together. So I just now try and think if something goes wrong, there's probably going to be loads of good stuff that comes out of it too, just because it's not how you imagined it. And so then when things do go wrong, you can just be like, Obviously, you're still going to be upset. I was still like, devastated when we broke up. But you can start to say, okay, well, in the past when things have gone wrong, all these, and I have activities around this in the workshops that I run, but to reflect on, okay, so when think of something that happened in your life that was really bad, that you were devastated about, and you thought it was like the worst thing ever, but look at how did that influence how your life is now? And so you can start seeing failure from that perspective, then when it does happen or if you're thinking about doing something where you think this is a risk, it makes you more likely to just do it because you're like, well, I made things went wrong in the past and then they turned out to be really good. Um, And so if you can kind of see it from that perspective as well. So what can I learn from failure? And also what great things are in my life because things didn't go according to plan. That's a completely different way of looking at failure than Well, I wanted this, but then this happened and that's a bad thing.
1: Absolutely. And I love how you describe it. And you also used a personal example, which brings it to life even more because I'm sure anyone listening has had a failed relationship Mm -hmm. or a relationship that needed time apart or whatever. And we've learned and grown from it. But there's a couple of things that came into my mind. So with some of my clients, I asked them to prepare a failure CV. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where I picked it up, but it's a failure CV. And it's fascinating when you do it, because you look back at your life at all the times that you failed at something and you realize how much you learned. Mm-hmm. That's what I did when I did this. I learned so much about myself and how I made the best of something. Or, and I don't want to belittle the failure or the learning, because at the time it was probably an awful thing. Mm-hmm. But actually, it also led to better things, things mm-hmm. that suit me better or whatever that might be. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I thought of was Amy Edmondson, mm-hmm. who talks about psychological safety mm-hmm. and how when you have an environment where it's safe to fail that, and safe to make mistakes, that actually it's about the learning Mm -hmm. And unless you own up or discuss the mistakes, you deprive your colleagues of moments of learning. And I think that's a lovely way to look at it as well, is that actually in the workplace, like you say, the Thomas Edison approach, if it doesn't work out, what did we learn from it and how are we going to improve
2: yeah, no, definitely. I've got a model about how to em- embrace a uh, fail-fast culture within organizations. And the first step is about looking for problems and opportunities. The thing I always say to people is, but to do that, you have to have psychological safety. And at the end of that workshop, I actually recommend that that book by Amy Edmondson. The, it's the Fearless Organization. Yes. yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't actually read that, but I've watched every video she's put out pretty much. So what do organisations, well, not organisations because they don't speak, but what do people in organisations say? What's their first reaction, Becca, to adapt or adopt a fail fast regime? For businesses, if it's
2: like a new way of thinking, the initial (laughs) reaction is, So you want to teach us how to feel more, like that sounds ridiculous. But once you explain it to people, I think at first it depends completely on the business in terms of how likely they are to embrace it. There's a famous model that a lot of people will have come across, you might come across it, called Kaizen, which is used in manufacturing, a model of continuous improvement. And the way that what that's about is that comes from, Japanese word of change is called kai and zen is good so that's a change for good model so then I created a model called fail for good which is called Zen, because the word in Japanese for failure is shippai. so I've got a model that that talks through seven stages so there's six stages in kaizen the seven stages in shipaizen and that's all about failure for good and how you can embrace failure and how you can get employees involved because Kaizen like I've never spoke to anyone who's got a good word to say about Kaizen not that it's a bad model but I think that make, people make a lot of mistakes using it and it's kind of got like people I talk to it's just got a thing of like oh here we go again um, so I've taken the things that people have told me about that about the fact that a lot of the time it just makes things have more Checks in or people on the like what went wrong. People are looking more at the who went wrong, and so when I talk people through that whole model, people are like, "Oh, right! Like this actually sounds like a good thing to do. It sounds like it's going to be less effort." Because I think a lot of the time, like the problem in businesses is when, from a failure perspective, is because people are so focused on getting things right the first time, they end up putting loads of effort into it, loads of resources, loads of energy. So then that increases the pressure on people to get it right. Because if you've spent weeks of your time at work doing something and you've cost loads of money, then yeah, of course, I own a business. If I spend a fortune on something, I wanted to work. If I spend a tenner on something, I don't really care. And so one of the stages is about uh, taking a minimum viable approach to testing things. A minimal viable product, which again I learned from startup world, which is just this idea of like if you want to make a change, just do like literally the minimum you can to test the idea rather than putting loads of effort into it. And so it's all things like that, embedding a fail-fast approach that really resonate with people. Well, actually, this sounds much easier than what we're doing now and much better (laughs) and like what we're going to have, be able to do things more easily and people won't be as worried about failing. But also if there's not as much investment gone into the idea, then it doesn't matter as much.
1: Yeah, wow. (laughs) I can kind of see the pennies drop for people as you talk through that model. And I really like that, fail for good. That's, that's quite cool. And you know what? As you talked about right first time, it brings me back to university because actually, you know, I studied business in university and the total quality management approach was always right first time manufacturing. So, and I think that's what so many of us have been taught over the years as well you've got to get this right first time so then when you come along and say no it's okay not to because actually it's nearly impossible to there's just a clash isn't there and depending on the generation you come from you might be more open or not to embracing a fail for good approach
2: (laughs) I think from everyone even if you don't go to university or Whatever you, I think for, we're conditioned from a young age to see failure as a bad thing. So like from being born, you're like, oh, careful, watch out, and then you start thinking, oh, is the world like a bit of a dangerous place that I'm not really set up for? Do I have to be careful and like watch what I'm doing all the time? And then you go to school and you get told when you're doing your GCSEs, like if you don't get your A levels, then you can't go to college or you can't do an apprenticeship or you can't get into sick form. Then when you're in sick form or your apprenticeship, if you don't get the X grades, you can't then go to university or go get the job that you want if you don't want to learn to drive if you don't pass this test then you failed then you can't have what you want so I think there's a message drummed into us from pretty much birth that if you fail you won't get what you want and you, won't you get- are less than somehow or you are worth yeah. less because
1: of that gosh It is. It's everywhere. And and there's a shame associated with it and a stigma and a lot of baggage that people carry through their lives, probably.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So for organizations and people in organizations to adapt that fail for good approach is really a mindset reframe
2: yeah completely so at the people and culture forum that I ran yesterday I spent two-thirds of the time talking about the relationship between individual failure success and resilience and then just one third talking about from a business perspective and that was really conscious because of the fact that the first thing is make people be comfortable with this idea that feeling's okay because otherwise it's just a waste of time you can't change your whole organizational culture if the people don't actually feel like then like they're not uncomfortable with it on an individual level. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And something else you talk about that I'd like to move on to now mm-hmm. is confidence and self-confidence, Becca. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose that even the failure, like running away from failure is a bit because of my expertise as well. So if I'm the expert in something, then I'm not going to fail at it and I'm going to put my confidence into that or am I? So what is the relationship maybe between expertise, confidence and failure if there is one?
2: okay so I think that for a lot of people so I think this kind of touches upon imposter syndrome which is a like big passion of mine so I've just realized I haven't actually explained like who I am or what I do or anything but basically I'm an organizational psychologist and so I've been trained in psychology so the understanding of human behavior and then businesses and how businesses operate and so and then I'm also a trained workplace confidence and resilience coach so that's a bit of context around what I'm talking about but I think when it comes to expertise there is a bit of imposter syndrome that often comes for people who want to see themselves as experts and they usually are experts but they can't quite believe that they're experts the reason I'm so passionate about talking about imposter syndrome is because for many years I had it really badly but I didn't know at the time I had it I didn't know I had it till I didn't have it and I got rid of it through coaching and now reflecting on that experience and how I experience particularly work now it's just completely different before if I was going to post something on LinkedIn I'd be treating it like it was a dissertation and checking all my sources and be sweating as I was about to post it and then I check it afterwards heart beating And it would take me two hours to do a LinkedIn post, but nothing has actually happened from this. It's fine. Whereas now I just think, oh, this is an idea. I'm just going to post it out there, see what people think. And so that difference in terms of just even in terms of productivity, two hours versus now five minutes, that extra hour and 55 minutes, I can do more work or I can spend time with my daughter or I can watch a film. And so it's just much nicer. And also the feeling after you do something, when you have imposter syndrome is a feeling of relief. You do a great job. You just feel relieved. Now, I do a great job. I feel happy and like I've made an impact. So where does the imposter come into that? So you said you would spend two hours
1: writing a post, for example, that now might take you five minutes. What is the imposter part of it?
2: It's the lack of belief. So imposter syndrome is an inability to internalize your own accomplishments and then add that into your own confidence. An organizational psychologist who's been working as an organizational psychologist for 10 years in the field of values, for example, might be like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to values. I did my thesis on organizational values, so that was a lot of work. I then built an app based (laughs) on values. And I still, after five years, was still like, didn't feel like an expert on that. I thought like, oh, people are going to catch me out and or oh, who am I to run a business and who am I to tell these people about values-based recruitment? Like I'm not from recruitment and then working in HR tech, like I'm not a tech, I'm not a techie. So I was like, oh, I don't know anything about technology. And so the imposter comes from this idea that you feel like you're an imposter within what you're. Trying to achieve, or what you're selling, you see yourself as selling yourself as something that you're not. Or another way to look at it is that the difference between who you see yourself as and who you think you need to be in order to do X, Y, and Z. So I'm not
1: sure if I'm answering the question here. Yeah, I've gone off. No, no, the... no, but it's really interesting. And, and maybe the question wasn't the right question to ask in the first place, anyway. And this is a much better answer. So, what's the relationship between confidence and imposter syndrome
2: yeah so confidence and imposter syndrome are two different things you can be a confident person in certain situations and still have imposter syndrome so you could be somebody who is confident standing enough in certain situations if you're talking about say football but then not be confident talking about your topic of expertise so for me for example I used to work for Motorola and I was a field sales rep and I had to go into different stores and teach people how to use mobile Motorola phones and try and like encourage them to sell Motorola products and that was all fine we used to have to go every month down south to have a monthly meeting with our colleagues and one time they said to us I want you to do a presentation for 10 minutes on the best practice in terms of how you demonstrate the phone and like facts and things you've picked up from your different visits and I was so anxious about that I didn't sleep the night before at all it was a 10 minute presentation in front of my colleagues that that were all lovely and that I got on with really well but it was this idea of like I have to now be an expert I'm telling them like this is the right way to do something so whereas confidence is a belief in your abilities in certain areas imposter syndrome is how you feel about yourself yourself as a person and so I had and people with imposter syndrome have a deeply held subconscious belief that they're not good enough and then a lot of the behaviors that come along with it are things like perfectionism, procrastination, blurred boundaries, saying yes to things that you really should say no to and that's because of this thing of you don't think you're good enough in whatever the arena is and so you then overcompensate in different ways. Um, As a coping mechanism
1: Becca or as a this is the only way I know how to do it. What is the driver? Because if it's subconscious, what is the driver?
2: Yeah, so I think for most people, if you have this deep belief that you're not good enough, you think you need to do more than other people to be at the same level. So with the perfectionism, I used to just think I had high standards and that that was just normal to spend all this time writing an email or practice a presentation that I already knew 50 times. I just thought, well, I've done that in the past that's worked for me and so therefore that's how you produce good work and so yeah it's a a self-justification then in hindsight almost what do you mean
1: so I've justified to myself I needed to spend that time in doing that task and that is normal because I have high standards
2: yeah yeah so like Perfectionism. This is just how I am. I produce good work. I have high standards, and that's important to me. And most of the time, you don't know what other people are doing. So even though you're like, oh, I'm the last person in the office, you see that as like a good thing. Whereas, so like I've had a client recently who, who I was coaching and they had 20 years experience in their industry. They were really, really experienced. They'd worked their way up from the shop floor to, to be in a manager and they would always, before they would have meetings with customers would like massively over-prepare, but they were just like, I just want to make sure everything's set up properly. And they were working more hours than everyone. They were having to work on the weekend and after the five sessions, we had a meeting with their manager and told the manager what we talked about and how the ch- what they were putting in place now. And the manager was just like, oh, I'm really relieved because I didn't understand how you were so, you're so good at your job, but you always seem so stressed. You always seem like you have so much to do. We couldn't give you as many customers as we can give to other people. And then that all changed once they had this understanding of actually just because I don't have a degree or just because I started off on the shelf floor or whatever, it doesn't mean I'm not like, really good at my job. I'm great at my job. I've got all these strengths. And so whereas they were using the over-preparing to make themselves feel confident in the situation, then by getting that confidence, that real deep confidence and the belief in themselves and their own ability, they were then able to stop doing all that, which then allowed them actually to be more flexible in the situation and less anxious because when you're anxious, you're in fight or flight. And so then you can't respond to questions as well. You can't come up with creative solutions. You can't think as well on the spot. So actually the preparing and the being so prepared for the meetings was was actually holding them back. But it was having the opposite impact. And this is another frustrating thing about having imposter syndrome. is A lot of the time, you're reducing your own performance because of the amount of pressure that you put on yourself. Wow. So the confidence is part of it. It's, it's a bit difficult to explain, but confidence is part of it. It's like you need to have that inner confidence to get over the imposter syndrome. So you don't have to keep doing the things to give you surface level confidence. So doing things like being a perfectionist, saying yes to loads of things, because then you think that you'll be seen as a good employee. Once you are, no, I am very good at what I do but I don't want to be doing this on Sunday. I don't want to be working until eight o'clock at night. I'm just going to do the normal amount of work that I need to, because I am good at this. It completely changes the way that you show up.
1: So somebody listening to this now, recognising themselves in this, what would you say is the first step? for that person to take and whatever resonated, whether it was the confidence or that over-preparing or perfectionism,
2: any of the stuff we've just talked about. So for me, I always like learning about some things. It's once I know about some things, so I got diagnosed with anxiety when I was 17, then I wanted to know everything about anxiety. And I think when you understand something, that self-awareness of just in the moment when you're deciding, all right, I'll practise that presentation again, Just having that thing of, is this imposter syndrome or is this actually what I need to do, can be really valuable. So I'd say the first step is to learn about it. On my website, I've got a couple of videos about it that I can share with you. You can put them in the show notes that talk about what imposter syndrome is, an activity that can help people to identify their strengths. Because one of the problems with imposter syndrome is, so there's something called confirmation bias that we all have and so what confirmation bias is is this this natural psychological phenomenon where we want to look for information in our environment that confirms our existing beliefs so if you decide to get a new car you'll then see oh I'm going to get a Nissan Duke. oh there's Nissan Dukes everywhere and that's because I know so much about cars and it must be a good car because loads of people have them and so you will start to see information that confirms what you believe and so if you believe that you're not good enough then you'll look for information in your environment that confirms that so if you think i need to prepare 20 hours for a presentation then you do the 20 hours preparation and it goes well that doesn't confirm your belief that you're good at presenting that confirms your belief that you needed to do those 20 hours so even doing well can make (laughs) imposter syndrome worse Uh, So one of the things that I get people to do in coaching with me is to look at what their real strengths are, because then you can start paying attention to that and you can use your confirmation bias to your advantage to start looking for things in your environment that confirm... That new belief that, oh, okay, so I did this activity and it said I'm good with people. And then I went into Tesco and I had a lovely chat with the shop assistant. And then you start to see those things on an everyday basis. Instead of seeing all the negative things that confirm this idea that you're a fraud, you then start to pay attention to these more positive things. So I would say the activities on my website are good um, and the information on there is helpful. But my number one, this isn't going to be for everyone, but my number one recommendation for anyone who ha- who thinks they have imposter syndrome and wants to invest effort and money in getting rid of it is to work with a coach who specialises in that because it's quite a complicated. Like, I specialise it and I can't properly explain all of <laughs> to you now. So it's quite a complicated um, experience. Um, but for, for me, like, that's how I got rid of it. And also, I've never worked with anyone who's had it who hasn't quite quickly over a few sessions of understanding it understanding themselves the origins the coping mechanisms being able to make a change quite quickly um so that would be my like number one yeah foolproof as long as you're with a good person tip on how to, uh, yeah. how to overcome it
1: no that's cool and of course then the thing about it is if you get over something like that or make life a little bit easier for you yourself then you're probably going to be happier at work. And I know this is something that you're really vocal about as well, is happiness in the workplace Mm -hmm. and the importance of happy people in the workplace. So tell us a little bit about that, Becca.
2: Okay. So it's not just necessarily about people being happy, it's about them being engaged as well, but happy people are better colleagues. They are generally going to be more engaged at work the main message that I would want organizations and leaders and managers to understand is that there is the right job for every person and that it's just about aligning an individual's preferences values strengths things they don't enjoy with those of the organization and the role and so there's no real reason why people should be miserable at work for most people they spend the majority of their lives at work and if you're miserable at work you're going to be miserable at home you're going to be driving to work like in a bit of a mood so then when somebody pulls in in front of you you're going to have road rage I just think if everybody was happy at work the whole world would be a nicer place
1: (laughs) I agree so much it has such an impact on everything in society Uh and yet 80% of people are not happy necessarily. They're disengaged in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's such a sad state of affairs.
2: Yeah. And so that's what a lot of my work is about. So I've said it's about mindset, but it's about understanding people. I talk a lot about confidence and this idea of I don't understand why on every leadership program, confidence isn't the first thing that's discussed because you can have the best. Tools in the world as a leader, you can work for a really good company. But if you don't have confidence in yourself, you're going to be anxious when people are asking you questions. You're going to be defensive if someone cr- criticizes you. Whereas if you have confidence in yourself, then you can just be like, oh, I'm not really sure. I'll check for you. You're going to then enjoy your job more. So I think businesses spend like so much money on all sorts of different things, but then a lot of the time, They don't invest in leadership training, which for me, I'm just like, eh, I don't really get it. There's no other job where you just let people do it. No other important role where, oh, well, on Friday I worked as a shop assistant, but now on Monday I'm a doctor. Like that just would never happen. Whereas it'll be like oh, on Friday I was a shop assistant and now I'm a manager in that shop and now I'm responsible for like 50 people and I have had no training on it and now I'm responsible for all these people's happiness. There's That's so many- a great point. <laughs> like I'm
1: responsible for all these people's happiness because how many managers or leaders even think that, I would ask. If you're a manager or a leader, do you get up in the morning and go to work and ask yourself, How am I helping my people to be happy at work?
2: I don't know that people do. No, I think think really good managers do. But then also I think this whole thing about like, oh, my manager's so awful. I've got such a bad manager. I don't think many people, apart from psychopaths and sociopaths, want to go out into the world and not do a good job and not make people happy or make people miserable. So I've had many managers I will describe as bad managers but now with my training I've had I just know they were untrained managers and that the systems that they were working in they were probably going to work the same as miserable as me scared of their manager who was scared of their manager um, and so I think a lot of it about happy employees is the fact that the people who are managing them don't understand people When I worked at Motorola and I had to go and teach people how to use phones, I got taught in depth about Android, about the different applications, about the different hardware, about the different size of the screen. And yet most managers don't get taught about their product, which is people. And so that's my whole thing is like on all different levels, you need to as a manager, you need to understand your product, because if you don't understand your product, how can you get the most out of it? And so this is why I talk a lot about like, not in depth, but like neuroscience, that's the operating system of what everyone's business. Yet, most people don't know anything really about how the brain functions and what happens when someone's stressed, what happens when somebody's tired, what happens when someone's engaged versus not engaged. And if you had that basic understanding, like I have a workshop about neuroscience of change, it's two hours long. And you'll leave that with a very good basic understanding of what you need to know. Yet people aren't spending the time, even just a couple of hours, trying to understand this type of stuff. But I think it's something it's intentional. It's like a lack of awareness of the importance. Absolutely. I think it's a lack of awareness. And also
1: because... I think we're all people, obviously, (laughs) and we think we kind of understand ourselves, then we understand everyone else. And we think the best workplace possible would be everyone would be like us, and they would just do the things the way we do it. And then that just would make everything really easy. (laughs) But that is not how the world works at all. And what you say about understanding people, because I started out my career in accounting and finance, and I became a director of finance at 33 And I had, I was responsible for a lot of people and their happiness. I just didn't know that (laughs) then. And I loved numbers and the people side of things was a struggle for me. So I was, I was a people person, but I was more interested in the work getting done, the work getting done, the work getting done, the output. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to change and understand myself and only by understanding myself could I be a better leader Mm -hmm. could I be a better manager Mm -hmm. and it was all about me having to understand me and then understanding that behavior any behavior is a communication of sorts and Mm -hmm. it's not personal this person isn't being defensive because of something I've done they're defensive because there's something with them That needs to be resolved. Mm -hmm. And um, so I left numbers behind and now I'm much more interested in people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, what a shift. (laughs) Yeah, no, a complete shift. Still like the numbers and I can do them. But the people side is so much more interesting. And I just think that actually, you know, what we talked about, that so many people are disengaged at work. It is just such a tragedy. It really is for the world not just for the world of work, but for the world.
2: Yeah. And I think oh. that self-awareness thing that you've just touched on then, that is like, for I me, mean, if there was one number one thing of what people could do to be better employees, better managers, better partners, better daughters, sisters, whatever it is, it would be self-awareness. So I think there should be some sort of law <laughs> that before you leave compulsory education, you have to do a psychometric on your preferences and how you respond to pressure. Because I think of myself as a very self-aware person, and I'm really interested in psychology and like reflecting on behaviors, and why did I do that? But even before I'd ever done a psychometric, I could add this one I use a lot called Harrison Assessment. And my husband used to tell me all the time about that, I did this certain behavior, and I was like, no, I don't know, I don't like what have arguments about all the time. And then I did the psychometric, and it said that under pressure. I did that exact behavior that he talked about and I was like oh you know that thing we've been arguing about for years turns out it's true and so you can't see it's like under often depression people can go to the opposite behavior than their natural everyday behavior that they can't necessarily see and so I think if everybody had to do a psychometric they would understand themselves so much better they could then talk to other people about so I like this one because it's about preferences any of you understand your preferences you can understand like what you like at work like I thought I wanted to be an events manager when I left school and my worst like preference and the thing I'm terrible at is attention to detail like there would have been the worst events ever known to mankind like they're just so <laughs> disorganized no one would have been I'd be like yeah that doesn't matter that doesn't matter as long as we have fun and I wasted loads of time like applying for I'm so glad no one employed me wasted loads of time applying for events management jobs where I've just done this psychometric at school I could have known that and I could have known that when I'm stressed I pull away from situations and just don't do any work and it just would be completely different they should make people do them before they're allowed to get married as well here we go, we'll leave it there. <laughs> that one. <Honestly. laughs> no, I
1: completely, I completely. <laughs> but just p- picking up on the point of getting to know yourself better and all of that, you did mention that you'd had an ADHD diagnosed, Becca. So, and I, now I also see you talk about neurodiversity and, and so on on LinkedIn. So maybe you just share a little bit about that as well, if you can.
2: Yeah, of course. So what kind of information do you want?
1: Well, I suppose what it was like for you to learn not that long ago that you had a condition or a deficit disorder, which I think is such an awful way of describing something. But what did it mean for
2: you? Yeah, so, so for me, I think I've actually reacted to it quite well because of a lot of stuff I've done over the past couple of years on my own confidence and a lot of work I've done around things like people-pleasing and boundaries and who I am as a person and what I'm good at. So I don't think it affected me, like, really, like, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people I've talked to are like, oh, it took me months or years to just get over the fact that I have this thing that's like a deficit in my brain doesn't work like other people's. But for me, I was more able to look at it as a way of like, I think because of what I do as well, and the fact I encourage people to see people as a whole and as everyone's just made up differently of different preferences and strengths and values. And, and so I think for me, it was just like, I just saw it like that. Of like, all right, yeah, my brain's wired differently. This makes certain things difficult for me, but it doesn't mean I'm any less than I was yesterday when I didn't know I had ADHD. But I think I'm lucky in the time that I've been diagnosed, and the industry I work in and the people I am surrounded by are very open to neurodiversity and they're just like yeah like some people are anxious some people are enthusiastic some people have adhd some people have autism like that that's my world and so i'm lucky from that perspective and like when i first got diagnosed one of the things i was upset about was if i could have known this 18 years ago my life could have been so much different and easier but then i also think 18 years ago that there was a small of a stigma attached to it so this is like this thing of that I say about trying to look on the positive sides of things that don't go according to plan is that potentially it would have been much harder for me to deal with on a psychological level because of the stigma like I don't have any shame around it at all I'm just like well yeah I'm creative and a lot of the things that go with ADHD are positive things like being empathetic having good emotional intelligence and being creative, having good emotional intelligence and being able to pick up on what's going on around me is part of why I'm good at my job. Like, it's a massive part. And so I think for me, and I'd, and like this is definitely not going to be the case, I think, for the majority of people, but it wasn't necessarily a negative thing. Finding out it's been really positive because the stuff that I kind of beat myself up for, being rubbish at, and now I'm just like, oh, well, it's just how my brain's wired. Like uh, when I had a sore back, I didn't used to beat myself up for the fact I couldn't sit at a desk for five hours. So um, I'm driving quite stressful and I'm really bad at parking. And I don't, I hate going to the supermarket and I don't like cooking. And so now I'm just like, well, does Tesco delivery online. There's microwave meals that you can get quite healthy microwave meals now with like no additives. If you're not wired like that, why are you making yourself do things that are really hard for you? Whereas I used to, and like used to do lists, like there'd be things on my to-do list that would just stay on there for ages because I knew they were going to make me really stressed. And now I'm just like, well, I'm just not going to do that. So like yesterday we got a new, you know, the thing that holds your phone on your car so you can yeah. see like, your phone and sat nav. We got a new one of those and it was in two parts. So it wasn't just like, we can just stick it onto the car. And I was just like, I can't read instructions. I'm not, like <laughs> this is going to really stress me out. So I'll just ask my husband to do it. Whereas, because that's just easy for him. So why would I spend half an hour getting really stressed out and upset when he can just do it easily because that's how his brain's wired. And then there's certain things that he's not as good at as me that he'll just ask me to do. And that just comes naturally to him. I think because of for people with ADHD, a lot of the stuff is just like easy stuff, like normal stuff. People feel bad about it. So that for me, the diagnosis has made me be a lot kinder to myself and just be like, all oh, right yeah well that's fine like you just don't you don't have to do it <laughs> oh that's like, brilliant give yourself a, walk, give yourself a break that's um, brilliant. And and I me like to play even more to, I like to follow a very strength-based kind of positive psychology approach to life but it's just made me even more purposeful about that
1: and episode 96, I speak to somebody who'd had an ADHD diagnosis soon at 35. And she had always worked with people who had neurological challenges, but now she has retrained as an ADHD coach. And so I think if anyone wants to learn more about ADHD, mm-hmm. that's an episode that you can go to. But we are pretty much out of time and that has just flown by. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to say your business is called Brighty People, because at the beginning mm-hmm. I introduced you as- Becca Brighty but I love that because it just has such a spark of of positivity and ignition and all of those things so tell me how do people connect with you Becca if they want to know more
2: yeah so the name was actually created with the fact it's my name, but also the fact I wanted Brighty People to be synonymous with a a way of thinking. You are a Brighty People if you think this way. So in terms of connecting with me, probably the best way is on LinkedIn. So as far as I'm aware, there is only one Becca Brighty on LinkedIn, which is helpful. Or if people want to go onto my website, and then that's just brightypeople.com. I would love to hear from anyone, any thoughts, anything like that? Anyone who has similar experiences or different thoughts or completely disagrees with everything I've said. I'm always interested in those types of conversations. So
1: Brilliant. And I will put all of that information in the show notes. And honestly, do follow Becca or connect with her on LinkedIn because you write so lovely and your posts really ring true and make me think. And I really enjoy them. So thank you for doing the five minute posts. (laughs) Well, thank you, Susan. I'm glad they don't take me two hours. To have the nice feedback <laughs> so becca it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today thank you so much for your time and for coming to talk to us here on life beyond the numbers
2: thank you for inviting
1: me you're welcome yeah. bye now bye Susan.
0: thank you for listening today and if you enjoyed this episode please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond And finally, please consider leaving a review.